pray. Father, thank you for your word that you, uh, you teach us, Lord. Your commands are true and right. Uh, your word is uh, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Lord. So we just come in humility and ask for your help. Would you teach us and shape us by your word? We need your help, Lord, to understand the things that we read. So would you come by your Spirit and open our eyes to see and help us apply these truths to our lives? We pray that you would have your way here this morning. And so where you need to convict us, Lord, would you please convict us? Where you need to comfort us, would you please comfort us? Would you just have your way? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, good morning once again. Welcome to FBC. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors. We're so glad you're with us. And I just want to invite you to open a Bible with me to the book of John, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The words are going to be on the screen. So we're just continuing this walk through the gospel of John that we've been doing little by little. Pastor Lee preached last week for us, the end of chapter 14. And if you were uh, here, you heard a word of uh, both encouragement and conviction and really appreciated the word that Pastor Lee brought. And uh, today we're in, again, the start of chapter 15 here on Palm Sunday, right? One week before Easter, uh, Resurrection Sunday, this coming Sunday the 17th. We hope you'll join us uh, Friday for our Good Friday service at 7 p.m. and then be back again, of course, for Easter Sunday and that you'd, uh, again, consider inviting a friend. It's the perfect time to invite someone to join you Easter Sunday. And again, this is today, the beginning of Holy Week, right? Uh, These uh, momentous days, uh, final days of Jesus' earthly life leading to the cross and resurrection, really these events that are at the, the center of all of history. And so we hope you'll, you'll join in with us in the days ahead. But uh, the good news is that we don't have to wait until next Sunday to celebrate because uh, Jesus is alive today. Jesus is risen and ruling and reigning. And so really, uh, every Sunday, in a sense, is Resurrection Sunday for the church. And so we celebrate that fact this morning. Uh, Here at FBC, we believe in the power of the name tag. Many of you utilize the name tag when you came in at the welcome table there, put your name on there. A great tool, right, to identify yourself, let people know who you are. If you go to a small group, as we started our rooted discipleship group a few months ago on the early days, the first few weeks, we would wear name tags so we didn't quite know each other yet, so we're getting to know one another. Uh, maybe, though, in a small group you've been a part of, you go further than just the name tag, right? You don't just put the name tag on. You also will do some kind of introduction, right? Let's Go around the circle and tell everybody, you know, what you do or tell us about your family or your favorite menu item at Taco Bell or, you know, whatever's really important to you, let us know in addition to your name, right? It's it's an important process. Introductions. Self-disclosure. Here's who I am. If we've been paying attention through the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus has given us these statements, these titles, these descriptions of who he is throughout the book. If you studied the Gospel of John before, you know that there are these famous uh, seven I am statements where Jesus says, I am blank and describes himself. And so this morning we see the seventh of these statements and we're going to consider, well, when Jesus shows up and puts on his name tag, you know, what does it 
say? When Jesus introduces himself, what description does he add? When the barista at Starbucks asks for his name to put on the cup, his, you know, grande dark roast with a shot of espresso, a little bit of cream, says, what's your name? So I can write it. What does he say? Well, look at how chapter 15 starts. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. So good morning, my name is Jesus. Fun fact about me, well, I'm the true vine, he says. What follows in chapter 15 is really this well-known section of Jesus' teaching where he has this really extended metaphor, this image of a vine and branches and a gardener and fruit. And we're, for the next two weeks, today and next week on Easter Sunday, going to explore uh, what Jesus is teaching about us about uh, life with God. But first, I want you to see again the context uh, within which this statement comes. That this is, again, one of several self-disclosing statements throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus has been telling us, here's who I am. We have the list on the screen for you, the seven I am statements that we've seen so far. I am the bread of life, back in chapter 6. I am the light of the world, he says. The door, the, the good shepherd the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And then here in chapter 15, the true vine. And as you look at those, you know, each one on their own is quite remarkable and impactful to consider as we've done, as we've preached throughout the book. But it's striking, isn't it, to look at them all together. Say, man, add all of this up. Look at all these claims Jesus is making about himself. I mean, each of them points out just how absolutely essential Jesus is to our life, to our flourishing, to our eternity. Right? He's like bread, he says. He's the bread of life that feeds and sustains us. The light of the world. He teaches us, guides us, shines in the darkness. He's the door to enter through to life. He's the, the shepherd that comes to protect and feed and care for his sheep, even laying down his very life for the sheep. He's the resurrection. He alone brings resurrection power, can make us alive though we are dead in sin. He's the true life. He is like a vine upon which we must grow and be connected to. We're dependent upon him for life, for vitality, for bearing fruit. So put it all together. Is there anyone like Jesus? It's, it's incredible to consider. And earlier in John chapter 6, you remember when he has this, this hard teaching in chapter 6 about people having to eat his flesh and drink his blood and some people are like, I'm out, can't handle this and people start to, to leave and they stop following him and he turns to his disciples and you remember what he says? He says, do you guys want to leave too? Right, now's, now's an opportunity if my words and my teaching you, you, you can't accept or embrace. And do you remember Peter's response? He says, Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Lord, there's no one like you. So yeah, I might have my questions, or I'm not exactly sure how the math adds up on, on each of these things, but Lord, I, Lord I'm not going anywhere. Jesus, there is no one like you. And so let's look closely at his his last claim here in verse 1. I am the true vine, he says. 
And Jesus, as a master teacher, does what he often does. He takes something familiar, like bread, or light, or a shepherd, or a vine, to teach us a deeper spiritual truth. A vine, he goes on to speak of branches and fruit, and in the ancient Mediterranean world, again, this would be a familiar image, right? Vineyards and vines were pervasive in agrarian society. The most common fruit trees would be fig, olive, and then the, the, the grapevine, which we got a picture of in case you forgot what grapes look like. We wanted you to be aware. And in the coming verses, the point is clear. Just as the branches are, are dependent, right, on the vine for life to bear fruit, they have to stay connected. So we are dependent upon Christ. Staying connected to Him, abiding in Him, remaining in Him is necessary in order to flourish. But before we get into the details of the image, I do want to point out another piece of context here. And, and knowing our Old Testament would help us a little bit here. Because throughout the Old Testament, uh, Israel, the people of God, the nation of Israel, are compared to a vine or a, a vineyard. Uh, some notable examples would be Isaiah chapter 5, uh, Hosea chapter 10, Psalm chapter 80. It paints this picture of God as a farmer or a vineyard owner who goes through all this work to plant a vineyard. He cares for the vine. He protects the vine and he expects to see fruit. It's a picture of the people of Israel, cared for by God, planted by God, and God wants to see fruit from them. But actually, even in the day of Jesus, if you were to go to the temple, there would be this golden vine uh, decor towards the entrance of the temple with clusters of grapes. It was this significant visual reminder there at the temple for the people of God uh, to see, to be reminded of what they were supposed to be, bearing fruit in the world, producing good things, vibrant and alive and glorifying to God. The only problem is that if you go and you look at most of those Old Testament references, Isaiah chapter 5, Psalm 80, Hosea 10, and others, whenever this vine image or vineyard image comes up, it almost always points to the failure of the people to produce good fruit. Every time it points to how the vineyard didn't produce good grapes, and instead wild grapes or a, a bad crop or the walls of the vineyard are broken down and wild animals come in and, and eat the fruit or the vine is trampled. And it's this picture each time of how the nation, the people of God were supposed to be this, this vibrant, living, uh, fruit-bearing presence in the world. They were to produce justice and righteousness and love and the knowledge of God to the nations and faithfulness to God. But instead they turned to idolatry and injustice, and bloodshed, and oppression, and sin over and over in their history. And so in light of this, Jesus, here in John 15, speaks, and he says what? I am the true vine. The true vine in contrast to any counterfeit. He's, he's the real thing. He's everything that Israel was supposed to be. He's the faithful one. He's pure. He is righteous, fruitful. And he'll go on to tell us, right, that those who remain in him will bear good fruit in their lives that glorifies God. And so I'm going to these lengths uh, to point out 
that this is another example of how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these images and symbols in the Old Testament. There's all these hopes, all these images, all these promises of the Old Testament that are pointing us forward to Jesus. Think about the Passover lamb. Jesus is the new Passover lamb. By his blood on the doorpost of our home, we will be saved from judgment and led out to freedom and new life. Think of the temple. He's the new temple, the place where God truly dwells with his people. Think of the the manna in the wilderness. He's the true bread from heaven to sustain his people. Think of David. He's the, the true David, conquering not Goliath, but our greater enemy, sin and death. He's a true prophet, bringing the very words of God. He's our great high priest, saving us by his once for all sacrifice. He's the true king who will rule forever on David's throne. We could go on and on, you see. He's the true vine, the one who will bear fruit and glorify the Father. And again, I point this out not so you have some fun Bible trivia you can share at your next dinner party and sound really smart. Although you could try that. Uh, I share this because this is really a, it's a reminder of, of the gospel and the message of Scripture, which is really behold. It's really look at Jesus and all that he has done. Look at him. Jesus comes and does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Tim Keller puts it this way. We've quoted this before. But he says, the gospel is good news, not good advice. Advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. You see the difference? And sometimes we reduce the Bible to advice. Behave, we say. You know, advice says, hey, you have to act this way. Here's how you can make it happen. Here's how you can uh, you know, clean up your life. Be better, get it together. But the, the main message of the Bible is not behave. Right? It's, it's first, behold. We behold before we behave. Right? The stuff about behaving is all in there. Right? The commands, right? a way to, to live, living a righteous, godly life, it's there. Obedience is called for, absolutely, but it comes after we trust in Christ. First, we look to Jesus. We see all he's done for us. We put our faith in him. Then we say, okay, Lord, let us walk in your ways. Teach us your ways. We obey him in everything. So he calls us to trust him. He's the true vine. He says, he goes on. Look at verse two. Actually, excuse me, the rest of verse one. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Okay, so Jesus continues with this image of a vine and branches and fruit by telling us what about his father. His father is the gardener or the the vine dresser, maybe your translation says. You get this picture of a gardener, God, our father, uh, working out in the field, carefully tending to the vine, pruning, removing the dead wood so that the vines, the branches might flourish might produce good fruit. Now, you have to talk for a moment about uh, what this whole idea of bearing fruit means. Uh, it's a common biblical metaphor, but if you're new to it, maybe you're like, what is all this, you know, what are, what are, what are we talking about here? Uh, it, it's this basic idea of your life is going to produce something, right? You're, something's going to come up out of your heart. Your presence in the world is going to have an impact. 
So is that impact, is that fruit going to be good and righteous and virtuous or not? And so think about the famous passage of Galatians chapter 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. Because what? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and so on. And so the idea is that if you are walking with Christ and have the Spirit in you, the fruit of that will be love and joy. More love and joy and peace and patience will come up out of your life, will be evident in your life if you have the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. It can also speak to, though, our, our impact, I think our presence in the world, our obedience. Are we taking steps to, to obey Jesus? Can people look at our lives and say, wow, look at uh, how they love one another. Look at how they serve other people. Look at how they sacrifice themselves for the good of others. There's a fruit, right? Your life can be producing fruit by your presence in the community, loving people well, sharing the gospel, seeing people come to faith. The basic idea is if we're walking with Jesus, our lives should show that, demonstrate that in some way. There should be something coming up out of our lives that, that displays that in our, in our deeds, in our hearts, the way we think, in our minds. You could go on. Um, think of it this way. The produce section of the grocery store has fruit and produce. And so imagine Rayleigh's calls you this afternoon and they're like, hey, instead we're going to start uh, stocking our shelves with the fruit that comes up out of your life the produce of your heart, what would they see on the shelves? What would you deliver them? I tried this illustration in first service. I think it works, but I'm, it's going out on a limb here. So um, we'll see. But you get the idea. What does your life produce? And so the image then in verse 2 uh, points us to is the father with two important tasks. You notice in verse 2, what does the father do? He removes fruitless branches. And second is his work is pruning fruitful branches. Again, removing fruitless branches and pruning fruitful branches. Let's look at those in, in order. Verse, verse 2, he cuts off, it says, every branch in me that bears no fruit. Now, I'm not an expert gardener. What's the opposite of a green thumb? Brown thumb, you know. I'm not, not great out in the yard, but I know enough to know that if there are, you know, dead branches, dead wood upon a tree, upon a vine, that it's helpful if they are removed because they can get in the way. An example of this in the context of what Jesus is saying here is, think of Judas. Just prior to this teaching, Judas, though walking amongst the twelve, though considered from the outside to be a disciple of Jesus, he what? He goes off into the night to betray Jesus which will lead ultimately to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And so all this time, Judas has had proximity to Jesus. He's been around, and yet there's not real fruit in his life. And so these branches that are cut off and removed, I think we can see them as men or women who have some degree of connection with Jesus or, or the church, but have not truly been saved. Do not truly have eternal life. There's no fruit. 1 John 2.19 puts it this way, uh, speaking of those who leave the faith or who abandon Christ, say they went out from us, they left us in other words, because they were not of us. 
And so these people who abandoned the faith and abandoned Christ and left the church, they, they left because they never were really in in the first place. There never was truly life there. And so like Judas, there were maybe some signs of being connected to Jesus, some proximity to Jesus, and yet his heart was never truly transformed by Christ and he never truly trusted in him. I mean, isn't that the whole point of this image is that true Christians display some measure of fruit. A branch that isn't bearing fruit isn't alive, doesn't have life in it, gets cut off. And so we're not talking about, hear me well, we're not talking about like the weak or the stumbling Christian, you know? Like you got some fruit in your life, but you really need more. And if you don't shape up and have baskets of fruit like this guy over here, then God's going to cut you off and throw you in the fire. That's not the image we have here. Rather, we have a person, again, with, with no fruit in their life. No evidence of life. No signs of life. So the application then is not, you know, make sure to work really hard so that you have, you know, baskets and baskets of fruit in your life so that you make the cut. The application is simply to consider, have you trusted in Christ in the first place? Is there life in you through faith in Christ? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus and identified with him in baptism and followed him with your life. I might be young, but I've been around church world long enough to know that right, there are people who come around and maybe stick around for a season or you know, show some initial interest, or many of you have seen this as well, right? And then after a time, um, they lose interest and leave and they don't want anything to do with Jesus. And maybe there were some, you know, some social, cultural reasons that are kind of driving them wanting to connect to church or whatever. But in time, like, like Judas, there's this removal or this uh, showing of what's really going on in the heart. This is what Jesus is speaking to. So the Father removes fruitless branches. Is there evidence of life in your walk? But the second task is pruning the fruitful branches. So the fruitless branches are removed. The fruitful branches are pruned. Look again at verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, again, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So God the Father, the gardener, prunes branches. See? Now again, I'm not an expert gardener, but I know enough. In the world of agriculture, uh, uh, branches that are alive, connected, bearing some fruit are pruned, trimmed, snipped, so that they become more fruitful. And if you've ever seen this process, sometimes it's actually quite striking, right? The before and after picture of a trimmed vine or a trimmed tree. Sometimes it's quite dramatic, all that is cut away, how much the tree is thinned out and cut back. I mean, to the untrained eye, it can make you wonder, like, does this gardener really know what they're doing here? Because it looks like there's, there's not a lot of this tree left. It actually sounds rather painful, right? I mean, if you're the tree, or if you're the branch, things getting lit- cut off of you, I mean, that isn't necessarily a, a pleasant process. And yet, There's great purpose in it, right? Because a a tree or a vine that's just left to its own devices to grow whichever way it pleases, 
will not be as fruitful or good as it could be if it is pruned. If it's pruned, that's where there's going to be purpose and intention and it's shaped and it's directed, not just wild growth in every which direction. And so if you are a branch in the vine, Jesus is saying, and you're alive in him, you're a Christian, and God the Father will lovingly handle your life and cut certain things out of it in order for you to bear more fruit. So God prunes us in a few ways. One, by changing our circumstances. A relationship gets cut off. A job or opportunity gets cut off or taken away. We have to move. We have to, to relocate. We enter a new season of life. Right? We, we get married. We become parents. There's changes with that. Certain things get taken away as we go that route. We endure trials. Maybe we have health challenges. There's something good in our life or something we perceive as good that gets taken away. Some of these things God brings our way purpose, purposefully. Some he simply allows and then purposes to redeem. He prunes us by changing circumstances. God also can prune us by his word. You notice that in the text in verse 3, Jesus says that the disciples that are remaining there are already clean, he says. It's a, a play on words here in the Greek because it's the same word that's used for pruned. The Father will prune fruitful branches, but you disciples are already pruned, is the word, but clean is translated there. It's the same word. In other words, the, the word and the teaching of Jesus is this central part of life and of this growth process. By hearing and responding to the gospel, by obeying the words of Christ, we already are in the vine, he's saying, experiencing the beginning of this process. And then, as we go, I think it's safe to say that the word of God, the word of Jesus, does prune and shape us. So maybe not thinking as much about external circumstances every time, but also internal changes, parts of our heart, ways that we think, ways that we identify, ways that we view ourselves, ways that we view God. You know, I used to think this way, and then I read the scriptures and God said, actually, that was quite a silly way to think and not accurate at all with who he is. And then he corrected, he cut that way of thinking out of my life. And now I see this way. I used to value or prioritize these sorts of things. And then God's word, I read it and it changed my heart and it changed what I thought about the world and relating to him and so on. Now, you might be thinking in all of this, well, this, this all sounds rather mean or harsh, pastor. I mean, God taking good things away from us pruning us. I mean, can't, doesn't he just want us to, to grow and be happy and can't he just leave us alone and let us go pursue those things? Again, there's great purpose here behind the care of our Father. Isn't it, isn't it actually good news to see that God in heaven, our Father, is committed to our growth, is for us, for our flourishing, for our growth, that we would be fruitful? He's at work, yes, for his glory, but also for our good, that no circumstance is going to be wasted, but God is going to use it to shape us. So I want to talk about a few of the, the good results, the fruit of this pruning process. First, pruning shapes and forms our character. God's pruning shapes and forms our character. We think of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. It says this, But God 
disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Here's the key. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest. There's that fruit language. A harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Doesn't that sound like John 15? No discipline or pruning, you could say, is pleasant at the time, actually quite painful, and yet, if we trust God in it and allow Him to work, there's this fruit, this harvest of righteousness and peace, this internal change, holiness that comes from this process. God shapes and forms our character. Think of Romans 8, 28 and 29 as well. Many of you know the passage, God works all things for the good of those who love him and who have been called, called according to his purpose. God works all things for the good of those who love him. Now again, we have to go on, read on to the next verse, verse 29. Well, what's the good? Does that mean God works all things in order that his people might be comfortable and wealthy and successful in worldly ways? No, the good, verse 29 goes on to say, is that we might, what, be conformed to the image of his son. That's what the context says. So God works all things in order that we might be shaped and formed into the image of Jesus. That we might look more like Jesus, think more like Jesus, love more like Jesus, act more like Jesus. That God in his goodness and in his power sometimes, or actually always, will even redeem the darkest, most painful seasons of our life and experiences and uses them for good. He wants us to look like his son. And so realize God's less concerned with our comfort and he's more concerned with our Christ-likeness. He's less concerned with our comfort. He's more concerned with our Christ-likeness. And those both start with the letter C, and those are pastor bonus points there for alliteration. So if you're keeping score on your scorecard, you can give me some bonus points there, okay? He wants us to look like Christ. Consider this quote from uh, famous missionary Elizabeth Elliot. It says, He makes us wait. He keeps us on purpose in the dark. He makes us walk when we want to run, sit still when we want to walk. For he has things to do in our souls that we are not interested in. He has things to do in our souls that we're not interested in. God wants to form your heart and your character and to shape you to look like his son. He wants to develop within you greater love for others, greater joy, greater trust in the Father, greater patience, greater peace, greater gentleness. And you may be thinking, well, isn't that nice and easy for Miss Elizabeth Elliot to say? She doesn't know my life or the loss I've been through or the trauma or or the tragedy. And I want to be clear, I don't want to make light of all the pain you've endured. And I want you to know that Elizabeth Elliot was not a stranger to tragedy and loss. If you know her story, you know that she uh, lost her husband at a young age uh, in attempts to share the gospel with an uh, unreached people group in Ecuador. 
So her husband was murdered along with uh, several of their closest friends when she was young. Later in life, uh, she lost another husband. She had to raise uh, a daughter on, on her own as a single parent for stretches. And so she was acquainted with loss and difficulty and challenges in life. And so she's not just writing as someone waxing eloquent about pain and hardship while not understanding the experience herself. God has something to do in our souls. And isn't it true as we think about maybe seasons of pain or hardship in your own life, that there's often coming with that great growth, great lessons you've learned, things God has taught you that you probably couldn't have learned really any other way. So pruning shapes and forms our character. Next, pruning makes us rely on God. Another uh, person who was no stranger to hardship was the Apostle Paul. Hear his words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Far beyond our ability to endure. You ever heard someone say, God won't give you more than you can handle? That's a lie. He will. Far beyond our ability to endure. We couldn't handle it. But God brought it. Why? So that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. He's writing here these great troubles and challenges in ministry. Felt they had received the sentence of death, he says. Now, things have been hard here in different ways over the years, but I've never, you know, turned to Pastor Lee and said, Lee, it feels like at FBC we have received the sentence of death. It's never been that bad. Okay, don't worry. Uh, but for Paul, he says, overwhelmingly difficult. And this happened, he says, so that we would rely on God and not ourselves. God, in his grace and in his goodness, removed the illusion of control He removed our illusion of self-sufficiency. He helped us see that we have to rely on Him. We're not in control, and no amount of money or comfort or success is going to save us and help us. We need God. So pruning makes us rely on God. And similar here is the third point. Pruning reveals our idols. Right In times of trial, our hearts are shown for what they are. Where do we run for comfort? What do we need to have in order to be okay? What do we get angry about or stressed about when it's threatened? We're worried that we're going to lose it. That tells us a lot about what's going on in our hearts. So God sometimes will turn the heat up and put the pressure on so that we can see where our idols are and repent of them and instead replace them with trust in Him. Right? We're... Trusting in that relationship a little bit too much, and so he moves us away from it. Or trusting in that paycheck or something else that we think that we need, so God cuts it away so that we can learn in a season to trust him more. Because when it's good, when things are good, it's easy to say, of course I trust God. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Good, good Father, it's who you are, right? When things are good. But in trial and pain, we realize where our hearts 
really are. And we pointed this out before. You think about, you know, the great COVID experience we all just went through. Great not in goodness, but great in its magnitude of just all that it brought our way. And the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. You guys remember video, we've talked about this before, videos of people fighting in the aisles of Walmart over toilet paper, right? And and the reality is that COVID and the the pressures that that brought didn't uh, make us sinful, selfish people. But it it revealed that we are sinful, selfish people. See, It, It didn't make us that way. It simply showed what was already there. And our sin and our idolatry, frankly, is just easier to hide when things are good. And so sometimes God will prune us and turn the pressure up in a way uh, so that it reveals our idols. We can see what's really there so we can repent and give it to the Lord and turn and go in his way. Now, we need to be honest here about the difficulty with a message like this, especially in the West, especially in America in 2022, because culturally speaking, we are the most wealthy uh, medically advanced, comfort-seeking culture in the history of the world, right? Not saying everybody's rich, but on a global standard and on a historical standard, looking back in time, um, we have it pretty good, really good. And so much of our life, we're trained to avoid pain, right? Seek pleasure, and again, compared to the majority of the world throughout history, our lives are relatively stable. And so we're really bad at dealing with pain. And if you're a secular, secular person, if you're not a Christian and, and, and you've adopted kind of the mainstream cultural values um, and approach to life, then suffering only gets in the way, right? Suffering is just a disruption. There's no purpose to it. It's just an inconvenience. It's a disruption. It gets in the way. It's an enemy. Uh, and, and many times as Christians, as believers, we buy into that same approach as well. It, it destroys our joy because if your purpose in life is to be happy, and in suffering, you're not particularly happy, then again, it's just in the way. And so because of this cultural piece, commentators have noted that we're the worst culture in the history of the world at dealing with suffering and pain. And that's not hyperbole. Because we're not equipped to process it and find meaning in it as those who have gone before us have. But so I want you to see then how as Christians, we have incredible resources with which to navigate pain and suffering. As Christians, we don't have to be stuck in that same place I just described because think about what this passage has just told us. We can find peace in knowing that we have a good father in heaven who is carefully guiding our life for his glory and our good. Our father knows what we need. Our father is for us and for our flourishing. When hardship comes, we can say, you know what? I have a a faithful father who is like a gardener and he's going to use this pruning to produce good fruit in my life, to refine and shape me, to mold me into the image of Christ, to make me more the person he wants me to be. He's going to teach me and I'm going to trust and he's going to teach me to wait and he's going to teach me to rely on him and he's going to teach me to rely not on myself. We can say this is hard, but there is great meaning in this. We do have to be honest that sometimes on this side of eternity, the math still won't add up. I think we've got to be honest about that, that sometimes um, we're not going to see 
how the pruning or the pain or the loss led to. Well, hey, look, here's the neat little line that comes over here to here's the fruit and all the great things that it produced. Sometimes there's just devastating loss or trauma or, or abuse or things that we go through. It just It's so, so tragic and difficult to wrap our heads around. We might not see a satisfying answer on this side of eternity. But even then, as Christians, we can trust that God has his reasons Trust that God is present with us. Trust that God is at work, that he'll redeem it somehow. That it somehow is, even if it doesn't make sense to me right away, it's all part of this bigger story and bigger plan that God is working out in the world and rest in that. So the question is, do we trust the gardener? Do we trust our father and his work in our lives? Jesus really drives home the whole point of this image in verse 4. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. My father is the gardener. You are the branches. We are the branches, he says. We can't bear fruit on our own. We have to remain. And so he says, remain. Abide in me. And next week, what we're going to do is we're going to continue this look at this image and look at the next few verses, this teaching of Jesus, and unpack, okay, what does it mean to abide and bearing fruit? What does that look like? We're going to go and unpack that even more. But, but verse 4 really is this perfect invitation into Holy Week where we look at this special week on the church calendar with Good Friday just a few days away, with, with Easter Sunday, and we can slow down just a little bit and seek to abide in Christ. Say, Lord, help me each day. Uh, to be open to your voice, what you are saying to me, to spend time with him and in his word, to stay connected. Maybe that's, again, a simple invitation, a simple action step for you this week is each day to be in scripture, each day to spend a little bit of time in the quiet with God, see how he prompts you. Maybe a next step is to go see Christine at the Foster the City table and learn more about foster care. Lord, would you guide me? Would you teach me? I trust you. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we worship you. You are the, uh, the true vine. You are the one in whom there is life. You are the one that came to do what we could not do. Uh, you saved us. And our life is found only when we are found in you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins in your name. Thank you for resurrection life, your spirit within us. You make us alive. Uh, when we trust in you. So Lord, would you, uh, would you guide us? Help us trust you, Father, and your pruning, your good work in our lives, even when it's painful or disorienting or difficult. Help us trust you. Would you shape us into the image of your Son? And Lord, I pray you'd send us out with great joy as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection on Sunday. Help us uh, soak up the meaning of the cross on Good Friday Lord, would this week be truly uh, special uh, for each of us. In your name we pray, Jesus.